Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at this psalm and ask you to guide and lead as we look at what true worship is all about through this psalm. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they, for they that carried us away required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the song of the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Razit, razit, even to the foundations thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewards you as he, as you have, reward, have served us. Happy shall be he that takes and, takes and dashes your little ones against the stones. All right. This song starts out in a very interesting place and ends up in a very interesting place. It sounds like heavy metal. Heavy metal? I don't know about that. But. No. I... Uh, this song is very Jewish in its, in its uh, view of Jerusalem and very Jewish in its view of worship. And we're going to look at this and then it ends up being very vindictive. We do not know who wrote this psalm. It's very obvious that it's written. It's definitely not David. This is centuries after David because this is when they're in captivity in Babylon and nobody knows who wrote this one. But it starts out the way we know it's from Babylon, because it says, by the rivers of Babylon. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, where we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Jerusalem. And it is talking about the sorrow, or remembered Zion, which we've talked about. Zion and Jer Jerusalem are inter interchangeable uh, terms. Is Jerusalem Zion, or is the mountain of the temple Zion? Yes. Zion is the poetic uh, word for Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and the whole, whole area, and that, that whole area. And it's poetic. It's used a lot in Psalms. Uh, but it is all about Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and all of that. Do you know offhand what the word Zion means? It's a base root Off the top of my memory, no. Okay. Uh, but they were sitting in, they're sitting in Babylon remembering. And remember, why are they in Babylon? Because Babylon conquered Israel. And does anybody remember how long they're going to be in Babylon? 70 years. There you go. Uh, so there's a, there's a time limit on how long that they were going to be in Babylon. And they kind of forget it at various times. And I think even David had, uh, Daniel had forgotten about it because toward the end of it, he says, I was reading the, reading the scriptures and I you know, was reminded or remembered and so they're sitting down remembering Zion. And we got to think about this for the Jewish population, especially in this day, but even in today's day, Jerusalem represents everything about God. The, it's where the temple is supposed to be. It's where their, where their headquarters, where their capital is supposed to be. It represents everything. Before they were captured, they had this idea that as long as the temple is in Jerusalem, we cannot be conquered. And God said, well, that's not true. I'm going to take this. And, and the reason being is 
that Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem, the, the Messiah is going to rule from Jerusalem for the millennial kingdom and in the new heaven and new earth, the Jerusalem. So in their mindset, if God is going to rule forever in Jerusalem, there's no way they were going to be kicked out of Jerusalem. The Antichrist helps the Jews build their temple, but from what we can see, he rules from Babylon, which is Satan's capital. Okay, the two have been, for whatever reason, Babylon has been the center of idol worship and false religion, and Jerusalem has been the center of true worship of God. All the way back to Babylon and Nimrod. Why he doesn't choose Jerusalem has got to be something for God. It's got to be something, a God thing that he doesn't use Jerusalem because that would be the ultimate insult would be to rule from Jerusalem, which is God's city. It's got to be a God thing that he does not rule from Jerusalem. Yeah, this is my, this is my city. You're not ruling. You're not ruling in my city, so you go ahead and use your, your Babylon. So it says, we hung up our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. In other words, they, you know, I can almost picture this. I don't know if it's literal or not, but they're uh, willow trees and all the poppers and everything with, with harps hanging on them. Uh, but it says, you know, we put away our music. And I read someplace, and I couldn't find it again today, but I read someplace that they literally had scarred their fingers so they could not play their lyres for the Babylonian people, what they wanted. They would not play God's songs in captivity. And I don't remember where I heard it, but it would almost make sense that these musicians would say, we're not playing our music for you. We're not playing God's music. And I want to make sure of this. But you know, these songs, and this, this scripture is a very clear indication of what worship with music is all about. Too many times Christians and and those believe that the worship time is for them. And our worship is for God to worship God. And make a joyful noise unto the Lord, uh, to sing to God. We're to be giving God praise. And the hardest thing in any church is, is all about music. Because there's always the group that wants this kind of music or that kind of music or, you know, I like this or I like this. Or, I don't like that. I don't like this. Right, it's not supposed to be about me. You know, it's not supposed to be I. What, what do I like? It's supposed to be I'm lifting up my voice to God. And, you know, we want to be able to say, yes, I enjoy to a degree, but we also have to understand that everything about worship is for God. And this is what we have to understand about worship. And worship is an area of churches that causes more contention than anything else that goes on in churches pretty much. Because there's always those, I like the hymns, I like the, I like the new stuff, I, like, you know, I, I don't like the drums, I do like the drums, I like the guitars, I don't like the guitars. Where, where's, our pipe, where's our pipe organ? You know, how come we don't have uh, a whole orchestra? You know, how come we're not doing Gregorian chants? <laughs> I haven't heard anybody go back that far. But you know, I'm laughing about it, but yet at the same time, it's a huge issue that has to be dealt with. And people have to realize all of this is for God. And we need to be worshiping. and. and of him, and this is what they're saying as they're coming in here, we're, we're captives, we're not singing God's songs in captivity. Because the world doesn't understand God's songs anyway. They don't understand worship, they don't understand God's teaching, they don't understand God, period. So to sing a, God, a song that's all about worshiping God is not going to mean anything to the world. And to be honest, that's part of our problem with our today's 
Christian music is they're working so hard to make themselves popular with the world that they're leaving worship behind. And, you know, I was actually listening to a quote from David Wilkerson where he was actually criticizing modern-day Christian music for being like the world. They say the right things, but once they start singing and, and dancing on the stage and performing, they're no different than any other rock band up there. And, you know, and I'm sure there's some good ones out there, you know, good ones out there, but, you know, I've watched some of the videos and stuff. I'm going, it looks just like, but I, what I see when I watch a Christian band playing, I see, you know, what difference is there? I'm still influenced by the world. They're very influenced by the world. And I don't know, and because they're influenced by the world, their influence to the world is dwindled. And it's the same thing with a lot of churches where they're preaching. But part of what we have, and we see it even in churches, is they're watering down the message so they can, quote, unquote, reach the lost. But by the time you've watered down the message to reach the lost, you've lost the message. And And, you know, we've got to be careful. We've got to be relevant to the population. But by the same token, Jesus says, they hated me, they're going to hate you. And the message to the world is offensive. The message of the cross is offensive. Lifting Jesus up is offensive to the world, and there's nothing we can do to keep the message and not offend the world. You think that's why they water sometimes to try to make the message more... Message more palatable so somebody can listen to them. But the more you water down the message to make it palatable, the more you lose the message. Nobody, nobody calls sin, sin. Right, and that's, you know, we're not calling sin, sin. We're not saying that people are going to hell. We need that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except by, by him. And the more we water that down to be acceptable to people, whether it's through the preaching, the, the music, whatever, the more we lose the message that will draw people to Christ. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The message has power because it is different from the world. As we lift God up, people see that there's a difference. And I mentioned it even this morning. Too many Christians are just like the world. They tell them, you know, I'm a Christian, you need to be a Christian. They look at you and go, why? Why should I be a Christian? You know, and sometimes there are people who are non-Christians that act better as far as the world's standard than many Christians. They don't go out and drink. They don't go tell lies. They, they work hard. They work hard. They have good work ethic. They have a lot of ethics. And they look at Christians going to the bar and, and lying and cheating and go, why do I want to be a Christian? You know, now, whether those are Christians or not, I'm not even going to go there. But they, they say they're Christians. And they look at them and say, why do I want to be a Christian when Christ isn't been, being lifted up? We all stand and fall short of the glory of God. Isn't, isn't that a hard sell to... Do we always live in those sins or do we repent of our sin and we're looking to walk like Christ? True Christian is trying through the power of God to live a holy life. They're not going out, well, I'm going to go drinking every, every, every night. I'm going to be drunk every night and, you know, and God's going to forgive me. True understanding of grace does not lead us to do more sin just so we can get more grace. It leads us into, God, you're so wonderful that even when I do sin, you forgive me. Yes. All right? And that should be the life of a Christian. Is a Christian going to be perfect? Absolutely not. But 
We should live a life that's at a higher standard that people look and say, now that's something that's different. That's something I can't obtain to with my good, good morals. It's not that hard because they know that we're not perfect. As a matter of fact, if they saw a perfect Christian, they'd think they were a phony anyway. What impresses people, what impresses people is when they see a Christian fail and they turn to God and they watch them and they repent, maybe not in person in front of them, but they watch them and their life has not been destroyed by their, by their failure. And it's a very important distinction uh, one of the things that impressed my dad when he was being witnessed to was that a Christian co-worker made a very serious blunder in his testimony, confessed to God, repented even to my dad and said, I'm sorry for being a bad example of Christ to you. And my dad's like, uh, this is not the Christianity that I'm used to seeing. And it had a great impression in him and led him to want more of this type of relationship with a God that will forgive. And you know, if we're treating too phony with people, you know, we're living a high, so a high standard that they go, I could never live that, so they don't want to do it. Or we live so beneath the standard that people go, why should I be a Christian? You know, the one is too phony, the other one is, you know, too phony, you know, not, is, you know, I'm better than they are. And, you know, it's a very critical thing for us. You know, what do we represent as we lift God up? And it's lifting Christ up and his, his gift to us and his resurrection and his grace. So probably more than anywhere else where we fall short on that more than anywhere. Most people that even are truly Christians don't fully understand grace. It's what you do that's really going to show that you're lifting Christ up. Now, you have to then be able to tell them the gospel message. And, and when you fail, you repent. And sometimes that may mean that you're saying sorry to family members, saying, you know, I yeah, really messed it up, and God's forgiven me, but I just want to let you know that I was a bad example to him. Now, are we humble enough to do that with our family? Not very often. You see, the most important thing that we can ever learn as Christians is what is grace all about? Yes. Because most of us don't understand grace. And even when you begin to understand grace, you still don't understand grace. And when you understand a lot of grace, you still don't understand grace. I'm 75 next month, and I'm just beginning to learn what grace really, really is. Yeah. And how easily it can be abused. And we may not even know grace until we're out of here. We're not going to fully know it until, until we're standing in his presence. When we start realizing how bad our sin was and how gracious God has been to us, we have everything in our relationship with God because of his grace. He gives us all the blessings we don't deserve, and that's grace. You know, if we, if we get anything from God at all, it's grace. We don't deserve it. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. And this is, I keep hammering on this, but it's true. If we think we deserve anything from God, we don't understand grace in the, at all and because it is all a gift from him that we have anything from him. It's a gift from him that we have life. And the grace he gives to the world to give them life and let them keep their life for all their sin until they stand before him at the white throne judgment. God's grace is so abundant and special that we will never fully understand it. Grace does not eliminate punishment. Grace just allows God to work with you for a longer period of time because of his grace. And we are saved by his grace. 
we are forgiven by his grace, but as we know, we are not separated from punishment for sin, and I say it all the time. Sin has consequences. God's grace is that we don't, his mercy is that we're not wiped out. His grace is that he keeps blessing us even when we're being punished for the consequences of the sin that we committed. And his grace allows us to continue to follow him and grow even while we're being punished in the process of the results of our sin. The acronym that they use for grace, and it's very shallow, is God's riches at Christ's expense, which means we get everything because of what Christ did for us. But it's so much deeper than just that acronym. We get everything, every blessing of God is because of what Christ did for us. When we stand before him in heaven, it is going to be because of his grace that we get to stand before him in heaven. The work that he did and the grace that he gives us. We, the rewards we get are because we let him crucify our flesh and work through us, which is a gift of grace. When we go before him, it's going to be, I don't deserve to be here. It's all you. Everything I've got is because of him. Yeah. My clothing is because of him and what he put on me because of his death. My rewards are because he worked through me to give me a reward. Mm -hmm. And I let him do it, which then he gives me a gift of grace back and says, here's your reward for eternity. When we serve him through his strength, he goes, okay, you did this. Now I'm going to reward you in heaven with greater authority in heaven. It's all grace. And again, I say, you know, if we truly understand grace, grace does not lead us into do more, doing more sin. It leads us into saying, oh, God, I am so unworthy. Thank you for all that you're doing. Help me to do better. You know, help me to do better. Well, in our, in our immaturity as Christians, yes, we'll use grace as a license to sin. And Paul says, should I sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. You know, grace drives us to serve God in a greater capacity, to a greater level. And there's so many pastors that don't understand this. You know, I've, I've seen them in the past. I've heard them on the radios and stuff that don't understand the power of grace and are afraid of it because they believe if they teach too much grace, people are going to go out and say, oh, I can just go do whatever I want. And God's That's not what true understanding of grace ever leads to. We need to trust that God is in control and his grace is all that there is. When I realize all the things that God lets me do, it's humbling because it's all a gift of grace. Everything that I've been receiving over my lifetime is a gift of grace. And the more we realize, you know, because I've heard lots of Christians go, you know, they feel literally that all their blessings are because of all the good things that they've done. Prosperity it's a prosperity gospel. I do good, God blesses me. Yeah. And we need to be very careful because I'm not saying go out and sin real hard for grace, but, but we also have to understand that without his grace, I have nothing. Nothing. That is what Job had to learn because he believed in the prosperity gospel. I've done all these good things. I deserve to have blessings. His friends believed it. Job, you must have done something really awful to go through to lose all of your blessings. And this prosperity gospel is not new. And God's saying, Job, you had everything because I gave it to you. So we also want to be careful that we don't find ourselves thinking that we're being punished too much for God because there's still his grace. He has consequences for sin, 
but his grace overwhelms those. And we need to be aware of, yes, there's immediate consequence for our sin. There's even some long-term consequences. But God's grace is even in the midst of all that. And he will give us a way of escape. <laughs> Verse 3. For there we were carried away as captives into Babylon. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required mirth, saying, sing us a song of Zion. In other words, the Babylonians were going to them, we've heard of your great songs, we've heard of your worship. David was famous. The temple singers were famous, you know, kind of like the Brooklyn Choir or the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. These guys put in long hours. This was their job. They sang songs to God. And I can picture that these songs harmonized real well, and they probably were in four-part harmony and, and doing all kinds of wonderful things. And, you know, things that we, when we hear the, the really good bands, <laughs> you know, the people that had good sound mixing their voices together. These guys were professionals. This is what they did. 24 hours a day, different groups would come in and sing before God. And you know that if they took pride in their job, they were doing the best job they possibly could. They were well known. And they're saying, sing some of your songs to us. You know, just sing some of your songs to us. And then the question in verse 4 goes, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How can we sing God's words to people who don't understand them? Have you ever tried to give somebody your testimony about what God is doing in your life that does not know God? It's an interesting experience. Oh, well, that's just a coincidence, or how can you give God the glory for that? You know, you were just lucky. Yeah. They will downplay everything you say. Why? Because as we said earlier, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. The, the telling the people of what God is doing in your life is foolishness to those that are perishing. That doesn't mean don't do it. Everything is, you, you're so lucky, you're so fortunate that everything's working out. They never, they don't understand it. And they were saying to them, hey, we could sing you these songs. These are God's songs, but you're not going to understand them. They're not going to understand the words. They're not going to understand the meaning behind it. They're not going to understand the, the purpose behind it. And again, go back to what I said. How many Christians still in their churches don't understand the purpose of the worship time, the worship and song? Because it was all about God and not me. And too many people think it's about me. I don't like this music. I want this music, or I want that music, or I want this music, or I want this music. And I, don't, don't bring those instruments in. And you know, we all need to sing from the hymnal, or we all need to sing the, the new stuff, or, you know, we hear it all the time, but it doesn't matter what we sing. We need to lift up our voice to God. And here they're saying, you wouldn't understand it anyway. How can we sing God's songs in this alien or strange place? How can we sing our praises of God to the world? They won't understand it. But, but would God have liked for them to do it? I don't know. Because I know they didn't do a lot of things God wanted them to do. I don't know on this one because if our praise is truly, our worship is truly to God, should we be doing it for the world? No. Because it was for God. Only, only, only But even then, who's the message to it? The message is to God. Yeah. The only way the world begins to understand it is if we water it down and it's no longer to God. But if 
the world has just asked you to sing, okay, I'm not too Muslims, just ask us, why? Because they've heard they're beautiful. Well then, for goodness sakes, pick out some that will talk to them, because the Lord has anointed us to be a witness to for him to the world. And I don't know if that's a good or not. I don't know. I don't know whether it's a good thing or not, because they're not going to understand them. At best, it will be entertainment. And that's what they were saying, entertain us with your wonderful songs. But they're not going to understand the, the beauty behind the song, so I don't know that it's a good thing. And this is why I say most of our Christian bands out there are there to basically glorify themselves. They'll tell you that they're glorifying God, but you watch them. They act just like any any rock and roll band, they sound very, like every rock and roll band. Their words are different. And if you concentrate just on your words, you, you, you know, as a Christian, we'll hear in some of their songs God's message. And other songs, you know, well, are you singing to Jesus or you're singing to your boyfriend or girlfriend? Right. And at that point, what difference does it make? And this is what they're saying here. How can we sing these songs that are to glorify God to you, world? You're not going to understand them. You might think they're beautiful. You might think they're cute or whatever it might be, but you're not going to understand the depth of the song. You're not going to understand the depth of the message. And this is why it's hard to be able to share your testimony with the world. Our testimony for the world really and I heard this this week, and when I first heard it, it, it shocked me. But how do we witness to the world? Our testimony is the least important thing in our testimony. Our testimony, when we're teaching to the world, is to lift Christ up. To lift Christ up. You're a sinner that deserves punishment. Christ died for you. Now, our testimony can be used if they're really hungry to say, this is what God did to bring me to Christ. And it might reach some people, but not very many. You know, we've got to be careful about what message we're bringing. My testimony should lift Christ up, and oftentimes people give the testimony and it lifts himself up. I and mean, we've all heard those. You know, this is how bad I was. Da, 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 da. They go on for 20 minutes about how bad they were before Jesus. And they come into Jesus, and Jesus saved me and everything, and I've been walking with him since. Not much of a testimony there is it that really lifts Jesus up. It glorifies sin. Jesus was the answer, and the story is over. over. That's a problem, and that's most people's testimony. We sought Jesus, or we found Jesus, and he changed our life. And very short testimony is fine. Tell people where you were, how you got there, and, and what God's done. But he must be lifted up because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Without him being lifted up, they're not coming to, to the Father. And so here we're seeing them. How can we sing these songs of the, the Lord in this foreign land? Now, this also has a very Jewish content. You know, they're, they're no longer in Jerusalem. As far as they're concerned, the temple's gone. They're struggling with, does God even exist? Because they had this understanding that God was everywhere, but at the same time, God was in the temple. And that was where they worshiped. And we've talked about this three times a year. Every male had to go to Jerusalem to worship God. The woman in Samaria who asked Jesus, 
You know, our prophets say we're to worship on, on this mountain. You're, you say that we have to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, there's coming a time where it's not going to matter where you worship. Basically, he was saying, even then, I'm everywhere. Don't worry about where you're worshiping me. So part of their answer here was, how can we sing the praises of God when the temple's in ruins and we're in this land? We're not in this land. God is... God has been lost. We have nothing to, to sing praises about. They had, they had lost their hope. This is what he starts at. We sat down by the rivers. We hung up our, our, they are a defeated people. Their God has been defeated in their mindset. And because Jerusalem's temple has been destroyed, somehow God has been destroyed in their mind. A lot of Christians get that way. Go through, a bad, go through a rough time and, oh, God, you, you didn't deliver me. You didn't, you, you didn't help me. So you must not be out there. You know, we got to be careful. we got to be careful about this. And it says, we can't sing this. And then in, in verse 5, uh, he starts, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. So it's coming back a little bit. Jerusalem, the center of where God dwells. The... The Jews would, when they prayed, pray, you know, would try to pray toward Jerusalem and aim, you know, look toward Jerusalem. When Daniel was praying in, in Babylon, it says he prayed toward Jerusalem. They're not as fanatical about it as the Muslims, but they like to face Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where God is going to dwell in their mind. It's where he be set up. And most synagogues are oriented faces Jerusalem. The, the synagogues are usually, if at all possible, oriented that for America you face east to worship uh, because that's where God's home is. They orient themselves so that they are praying, uh, worshiping toward Jerusalem, the seat of God's rule. Even though there's no temple in there at this time, that is God's city, and this is what he's saying. If we forget you, Jerusalem, I hope my hand forgets how to play the, the harp. If I forget about Jerusalem, if I forget about God in Jerusalem, I just hope, pray, God, that you will not even let me be able to play worship songs anymore on my, on my harp. Pretty powerful statement. <laughs> but it's also very good. If I forget God, now you know, I put God in there. God, if I forget you, I don't want to be living for anything. I don't even want to want to be able to worship if I forget you. And this is so important. You know, and I've shared this many times when we sing in, on Sunday morning. Are we thinking about the words we're singing in these songs or are we just singing words that we have sung a hundred times before and we just like the, we like the tune, we like the song and we're not thinking about the words? And you know, I've caught myself doing that on occasions where I just, you know, Singing the songs. I, I know most of the songs in the hymn, at least the first, first verse in the chorus by, by heart, and I've got to be careful that I don't just start singing words, but that I'm actually worshiping God. And this is why sometimes I'll point out, did you catch this phrase in this, in this song? Because right now I think we need to be reminded about God's power and the blood. Because Satan is on the move right now against this church, against yes. people in this church, against this town. Satan is agitated, so we're going to lift up the cross and the blood against it. Let God be, be moved and worship. And I did it very much on purpose and will continue to do it very much on purpose. The blood to be on people's minds. I want them to think about these things. Verse 6, 
If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Now, I love this. God, if I forget you, let me not be even able to speak or sing. Let my tongue cleave, be glued to the roof of my mouth. You were down, so you couldn't hear. <laughs> Basically saying, I don't, don't let me say anything. If I can't, God, if I can't say something for you, don't let me be able to say anything. All right, don't let me, if I can't worship you, don't let me worship anything. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy or pleasures. Do we lift God up above all other pleasures in our life? Is he the absolute treasure of our life? For many people, it's not. I would like it to be, but you know, I'll be honest, there's times when he's not the primary part of my life, and he's very much part of my life and primary in life a lot, but not all the time. You know, not all the time. And here it says, if I prefer not Jerusalem or God, because they're looking at Jerusalem being God or being where God sits, if I don't prefer God above my chief pleasures, my chief, my, my number one joys in life, you know, this is something we've got to be able to look at. This is what's going to set us apart from the world when I say, I want to serve God. You know, I tell everybody, you know, I love being with God's people. I really do. It's the center part of all my week and, the, and my day is the five times I'm here teaching. It's the times when I sit down with people, even at the prison, and I talk about God. You know, he's pretty close to being the chief part of my pleasure. I don't have much pleasure outside of God. But there's still times when even I don't think that he's the, the chief of my, of my life. There's times when I you know, forget him. Not often, but there are times. And it says, I need him to be number one in my life. Is he the one that we look at? Is he the one that I want to please at all cost? And it's very important for us to get to this place where we're saying, God, I want to lift you up. You know, and by lifting him up, you know, how often do we defile God in his name among the world because of the way that he, we don't lift him up? You know, God wants to be blessed. He wants to be the center of all that we do. He, want, he wants us to praise him, lift him up in all situations. And the only way we can do that is for him to be so real in our life that he's who we talk about. And do we bring him in? Do we kind of say, this is, this is what's important in life. This is what we're going to look at. You know, I want to be able to teach about God and lift him up in his will. Am I looking at God? What is it you want me to do? Now, doing what he wants can be a very interesting topic sometimes. You know, sometimes it might mean that I just go hang out with somebody and watch a movie with them. You know, it may not be my first choice, but God may say, I want you to minister to them by just being a friend with them and doing this. Uh, that doesn't go, say, go watch the worst movie out there that, <laughs> that is possible to go watch, but, or listen to the worst music in the world, or go to the bar and drink with them. But there may be a time when Somebody says, well, is it wrong to go camping? No, if God's putting it on your heart to be ministering to you know, this person and your family, then go camping with them. Go fishing with them. Go hunting with them, even if, it's, even if it's going to be Sunday. Now, if you're doing it every single week, you might have a problem. 
If you're doing it all the time, you're going to have a problem. But there's no problem for a family to decide, we're going to go do family time, and we're going to go camping this weekend, and we're going to worship God on Sunday with the family together. No problem with that. Again, don't do it every single week, but you know, we look at this and say, is Christ being lifted up in what we're doing? You know, is it very important for us to have some non-Christian friends that we can be able to minister to? Now, should your best friend be a non-Christian? It's probably not a wise idea. It's not a wise idea for your best friend to be a non-Christian. Especially if you tend to get your advice from them. Yeah, that, that would definitely not be good. Uh, you don't, want, you don't want them to be the one giving you advice because that definitely won't be biblical. But do we need to have friends that are non-Christians? Absolutely. Who are you going to witness to? Right. You know, who are you going to witness to? And the problem is the longer you're a Christian, the less non-Christian friends you usually have. And it doesn't even have to be your choice. The more you talk about God, the less likely the non-Christian is to stay in your orbit. They're going to go, well, you're no fun. You're always, you think you're better than we are. You're, you're not doing all the sins that we're doing. It's so important for us to understand, the more we live for God, the less the world's going to want to be with us. And if we have the world enjoying our presence, we're probably not lifting God up enough. So what we need to be looking at is not to be obnoxious to the world, and it may mean that we're going to have to do things every once in a while that put us out in the world. Join a sports team or something that puts us out amongst the world once in a while, or some club or something that puts us in, not completely in there, but often enough that we at least have interaction with lost people. That, or get really brave and go witnessing in the, in the parks and stuff, which most people won't do. So you're probably better off going on a bowling league or a you know, soccer team or something, do, or, or a drama club or something that draws you in to the world. Or playing cards with them as long as you keep yourself spiritually attuned and take advantage of those opportunities to share Christ when they come up and not be afraid of bringing his name up. So there are things that have to be done to put us out into the world. And if you become like the world to try to befriend them, then it doesn't work. Because when you spin it around, they're looking like, well, you're just like, you were just like us. What, what kind of testimony is it? Yeah. What's it about? Yep. Right, we're going to cover these last three verses. These last three verses kind of change, and they almost seem like they don't belong because they're talking about honoring God, praising God, and now all of a sudden they're going to get very vindictive and accusative to them. Verse 7, remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, Raz it, raz it, even to the foundation. Okay, you know, so he says, remember the children of Edom. Now, Edom, if you remember, was a descendant of Lot, and they are always causing Israel trouble. <laughs> All right, excuse me, not a child of Lot, uh, from Esau. I always want to say Lot, and it's not Lot, it's Esau. They're from the line of Esau. Esau was red, and Edom means red, and Esau means red. So they're the children of Esau. So these are relatives that keep telling the Gentiles, go get them, basically. Yeah. You know, we're not going to help them. You go get them. They're jealous of God's work with Israel. All right? Uh, because we have Esau and Isaac, uh, not Isaac, uh, Jacob. Jacob, and they were brothers, 
and Jacob was the younger brother, and he was selected to be taking the promise, and there's always been that vindictiveness from that point on. We go back to Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael's the oldest, but Isaac was the chosen, and Part of that whole world has two different family lines where the oldest were rejected and the youngest were accepted for the promise, causing all kinds of problems in the area. And even even, even Esau married Ishmael's daughter, making his children connected to Ishmael even that much more. Right. There's all kinds of problems with that whole... That whole thing, and that's part of the problems in the Middle East is that it's a huge family issue, and it's a family feud that's been going back all the way to Abraham, mm-hmm. and is going to be very hard to solve because of its deep roots. You know, that's why it's going to take Jesus to solve it yes. in the Millennial Kingdom when He's destroyed all the other other things. So. No, it's not what he wants, it's just what it is. But it says, Edom was saying, all right, Babylon, destroy it, bring it down to nothing, and they did. They brought Israel, uh, Jerusalem down to nothing. And this whole idea of, of razzing uh, is the idea of laying it bare, emptying it. They tore down the temple, they, they tore down the walls. Jerusalem was virtually wiped off the face of the earth during that period of time. Very little left. And Edom cheered them on. Go get them. And remember, Edom gave Moses a hard time as he was bringing the people around and said, can we go through your land, you know, brothers, can we go through your land and we'll pay you for everything that we're going to eat and drink? And they said, no. And God says, you're not going to fight them because they are brothers. Go around them. And they did the same thing in Ammon. And then finally were able to go battle somebody for their, for their rejection. But all the way around, God says, nope, these are, these are fellow brothers. They're, they're, not, they're not acting like brothers. They're not acting like family. But they are family, and you're not going to destroy them. Oh, he was going to go get them. Then verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed. (laughs) Babylon, you're going to be destroyed. Seventy years they were able to keep Israel in captivity, and then they fell to the Medo-Persian Empire, and which then led to Cyrus, who was going to send them back to their land. And Cyrus had already been predicted that he was going to send them back to their land 400 years before he was born. (laughs) He thought that was cool. Now, But he says, oh, Babylon, who about to destroy, happy he that rewards you as you have served us. Okay? I'm taking out some of this italics words because these italic words do not belong. If you see italics in your King James Bibles, those are extra words that aren't in the original scripture. They're there supposedly to help us understand the sentence. And sometimes they make a mess out of the sentence. And in this case, I think they make a mess out of it. All right? Uh, he says, happy is the person who's going to reward you for what you did to us. Let's simplify this. You, because one of the accusations against Nebuchadnezzar was how violent and cruel he was to the captives of, that he took out of Jerusalem. 
He was, he was very cruel to them. Of course, that was who he was. He was a very cruel man. And God says, because of your cruelty, your kingdom is going to be taken. And Nebuchadnezzar turned to God as far as we can tell from his story in Daniel. And it was his, grand, his, his son and his grandson that lost the kingdom to Medo-Persia, an empire. And he says, you're going to be rewarded for what you did to my children. You did not have to enjoy t taking them into captivity. And oftentimes when God uses the world to discipline us with our consequences for our sin, God says, okay, you went too far. World, you went too far. Satan, you went just a little too far, you know, beyond what I, you know, beyond, and he knew that they were going to, and then he disciplines them. Babylon is going to be destroyed by the Medo-Persian Empire because of how cruel they were to Israel. And here this song, song writer says, you know, you're going to get the full measure of what you've done. You know, the world would say what comes around goes around, and you know, we would say you reap what you sow. And it is very true. We reap what we sow, and it's not God standing there saying, okay, let me, let me dish it out. It is literally a law that he's put in this world. If a lost person does good things generally, they will be rewarded with good coming back. In most, most cases, if they do evil, they get evil. It's the law of sowing and reaping. You sow seed, you sow actions, and you get back more of what you sow. And we've brought this out on a couple of occasions. When you sow seed, you always get back more than you sow. And the thing we've talked about is, you know, I've talked about this before. If a farmer put one grain of, of corn in the in the ground and he got one grain of corn back, he's not going to stay in business very long. Now, he expects to plant one grain of corn and get several ears of corn back. He puts one pea in the ground to, to produce peas and he hopes to get many pea pods of, of it. You know, he puts one seed from the jalapeno pepper in and he wants lots of jalapeno peppers. He's not looking to get one jalapeno back. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's the same thing when we sow into our life. We sow good, we receive much good. We sow, sow bad, we get much bad. And this is what he's saying. Babylon, you're about to receive what you sowed. You sowed cruelty to Israel and God's people, and you're going to receive it back. And Babylon fell in a night. The Medo-Persians were at their gate, and they took the city in one night. It was actually through the water. Yeah, through the water. <laughs> and then verse 9. Happy he that takes and dashes your little ones against the stone. Now this is very violent, you know, when yeah. you think about this one. He says, who's going to take you? They're going to be blessed and happy as they take and destroy your young. And this is what happened when the Medo-Persian Empire took over. They just annihilated everybody in Babylon. It was a very cruel time, and it was because of what they had done to Israel that caused it. And you know, the sad thing is, so often, those that we at least would say were innocent, the children, they're not innocent by any stretch of the imagination, but we would like to think of them as being innocent. Oftentimes, they're the one that hurts for the disobedience of the nation and the families. Families 
are disobedient and they end up teaching their kids to be disobedient and their kids are usually more disobedient than the parents were. We see in our world where, where the children are hurt all the time because parents are so selfish that they're going to do what's best for them. Leaving, leaving their kids home alone while they go party. Uh, worse yet, aborting their children and killing their children even before they're born because they're just an inconvenience. You know, they're just so inconvenient for me to have a kid, I just want to get rid of this kid and murder this kid, and this kid will never live because I want my fun. Yeah, the, 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 all the eyes that always get involved. Yeah. Well, why did you leave your kids alone while you were partying? Well, I just had to have my good time with my friends and my fix, you know, and, and the kids could get by on their own. They're only three, and they're only one and two. They can get by for a couple hours on their own. No big deal. And we sacrifice so much, so often, to the I. You know, what's important to me? God said, be fruitful and multiply. And even in Christian world right now, there's people that say, Oh, no big deal. I, I, I want to have my fun. I, I don't want to do what God says to do. You know, we need to be so careful. What does God say to do? And look at God and say, God, I want to follow you. Yeah. And people will tell you, well, the world's running out of room. Well, i got news for you. There's a lot of room in this world. <laughs> and there's a lot of food being made in this world. There's a lot of food being wasted in this world. Yeah. You know, right now we're making plastic and foam out of a lot of our a lot of our crops that should be going to feed, feed things. You know, we're doing all kinds of things. We're, we're making our biofuels where we're taking food that we grow and putting it into our fuels. You know, what, a, what a thing that Satan has convinced us is a good idea. Take food and use it for disposable stuff instead of feeding people. And then everybody will tell us about how we're starving, how the world is starving. And you know, we want to be very careful. God got a blessing for obedience. And we want to be able to say, God, I just want to obey you. I want to live for you, God. And too often we do things that are not living for him and not trying to follow him. And we want to just lift up God, lift Jesus up, lift God up. Being obedient as he will allow us to be and as obedient as we will allow him to crucify our flesh Will we be perfect? Absolutely not. But we need to be able to lift him up. And again, when people look at us and say, that's a life that, I, that looks interesting. I think that's a life that I want. A person who can smile in spite of all that's going on in their life and they have joy. I'm not saying be happy. When you're in the middle of pain and suffering, that's not a time to be happy. But God gives us peace and just a contentment inside us. And people look at us and say, Wow, that's different. I've shared with many people, I would never trade this life that I have with Christ for anything. Even if I was to find out there's no heaven, this and then you know, then this is all there is, I have had a content, peaceful life that God has given me. And it's this life that tells me that he's true in heaven. That heaven is going to be true because of the life he's given me on this world. And I'm going, thank you. But if this is all there is, I would still say, thank you. I've missed nothing by living this life. Let's close. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this song, Lord. Lord, help those who hear this online and those in this room learn to follow you and to live the way you want. Help us to always put you first and lift you up. In your son's precious name, amen.